Good morning. We are in Amos chapter 2 this morning. <clears throat> we will be looking at verses 6 through 16. Before we get started, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, help us again. Help us again to understand this text. Help us to be able to sort through what is a, in some levels, disgusting situation in Israel at this time, in many cases. Help us to be able to see clearly, to understand clearly. Help us to be able to see you in this text. Help us to be able to see ourselves. Draw us to repentance. And then draw us to worship and praise. I ask that only one real thing happens this morning, Lord, and that is that you glorify yourself as you see fit to open our eyes. In your name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> Amos chapter 2, verses 6 through the end of the chapter, verse 16, is an interesting section of verses. If you read forward this week, you know it's, <clears throat> even though some of the things may not say exactly what you think it says, some of the things do say exactly what you think it says. <clears throat> um, it's pretty rough text. In fact, it's not just a pretty rough text, it's a very rough text. I don't mean rough English-wise or Hebrew-wise in the Hebrew. I mean what is being described is painful. It's frankly horrifying and disgusting. <clears throat> if we're not careful this morning, we will read this and find ourselves condemning the recipients of this letter. <clears throat> and that would be grotesquely missing the point. <clears throat> so let me just say this. Uh, this is a great, if I may use this, this passage as an example, this is an excellent passage to learn a little bit about hermeneutics. Hermeneutics means the art of interpretation, study and interpretation. Um, <clears throat> oftentimes in the scriptures, there will be very specific many times, very specific things stated in condemnation pointing out failures in a specific group of people. We find that today. And it's very easy to do something very bad in the text. And that is to isolate the incidents to the incidents. Or the incidences to the incidences. Plural. It's very easy to just have, if I may put it up, blinders and just see the specifics of what he's talking about and missing the grand sweep. In our text today, there's a couple things that are needful for us to understand. <clears throat> Number one thing that's needful for us to understand is what, what he is presenting here in the text today are very specific failures of the people. We can't miss it. Very specific failures of the people. And they're very painful failures. God's covenant people sinning very grievously. It's very easy, and we must not do this <clears throat> again, is to miss the point that there's a whole lot going on much more than what is presented in the text. If God had Amos write about all the sins of the people, 
when I'm saying the sins of the people, I mean the common sins of the people. The book would be much longer than the chapters that it is in our Bible. Best way to understand it, and almost always it is the case, is this. It is a priming of the pump, is what it is. You don't pour in water into a pump to get it to work. You don't pour in the amount you want to get out. The point of pouring some water into a pump is to get it so it grabs a lot of water and brings it out. In this case, the idea is we're pouring in a few of the sins so that if the person receiving this letter has a heart of softness, of, as the scriptures describe, a fleshy heart, there's going to be a whole lot more sins they're going to be pouring out as the pump is worked. Does that make sense? In the person's heart as God is working in their heart, if he is. Very important we understand that, because otherwise what happens, we just isolate to this. Now, along with that, we must not isolate, because if, if, we're, if we do, we would very easily come away from this text saying, wow, those Israelites were pretty what? Bad people. And then we'd start sounding like somebody in the New Testament by saying, oh, we'd never use these words, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like them. We must not go there. We must not go there. You go there, and it is absolutely a blind self-condemnation. Can I just submit to you right off the bat? People are people are people are people. I don't care the, care the era. I don't care the specifics. I don't care any of that. People have always been people, ever since Genesis 3, the fall. We can argue it a different way. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Very important we get this. Now, in order to do that, we've got to understand two things. Again, number one, it's the priming of the pump. Number two, that we need to desperately understand is this. <coughs> the statements that we find in this text, that is the condemnations, that is the specific sins that Amos identifies in this text, are dramatically linked to the covenant in Deuteronomy. Very important we get that. Because that is going to actually be the hermeneutical key, the interpretation key, that's going to help us not only understand the text, but understand how we fit into the text. Because it's more about the pattern of knowing the truth and rejecting the truth than it is about the specific sin. It's more about knowing that this is not how to live and this is how to respond to a God, to the God that has saved you, and not responding to him that way, but responding differently. That's what it's about. That's the big picture. I know who God is, and I know what he's declared, and I am responding differently than that. That's the issue. More so than, I can't believe they did this, and I can't believe they did this, and I can't believe they did this. In the Old Testament, they knew their God. He, God revealed himself, and he, in, up to this point in time, probably nowhere more concisely revealed who he was than in Deuteronomy. He gave what he wanted for the children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 1 through 5, and it continues actually all the way through 8, but in, in its most condensed, powerful statement, statements in verse, chapters 1 through 5, he clearly introduces himself in an amazing, ro amazingly robust way to, to the children of Israel who their God is. And he reveals it in light of their history and his working in Israel in their history. 
And it's from there that we come to chapter 6, which we've already referenced, about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We referenced it last week. And from there, he goes into all the laws and statutes. <coughs> What's happening in the text is he's continuously, as we've talked about before, all the way through all, all the books of the Old Testament from Deuteronomy onwards, they're referencing Deuteronomy again and again and again. And so the, the import of the individual text finds its value not in it, the text itself, but in its connection to Deuteronomy. Now, Christ came and fulfilled the law, so we can immediately say, well, you know, it doesn't apply to us anymore then, right? No! Because Christ also revealed himself to us, didn't he? And he also called us to something, did he not? And so the question still remains, in light of who God is and what he's declared, who am I? It's a really important question. So let's read the text, and then we'll start working our way through it. <coughs> Starting in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, sounds familiar, doesn't it? For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them whose height was like the height of the cedars strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his root beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you for 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel? declares the Lord. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift and the strong shall not retain his strength. Nor shall the mighty save his life he who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself. Nor shall he who rides the horses save his life, and he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. Horrifying passage, isn't it? Big overview. You have the transgressions. You have God doing another reintroduction of himself. And then you have the, the, the consequences. Does that make sense to everybody so far? And you have the consequences for that. What you have in this text, if I may put it uh, uh, very clearly, 
is you have a study in contrast. Now you know God teaches in contrast. We've talked about that before. You have a study in contrast, and it's a multi-layered study in contrasts. It starts out with a minor study in contrasts, and then it goes to a really major study in contrasts, and then it goes to condemnation. So just to give you, a, again, another overview and a different perspective. In the first section of the passage, there's a number of things that we've got to help you understand. Uh, it's important you understand them, and they may be a little confusing at first because I know typically we don't know the law as well as we should, and uh, so we, we uh, the Old Testament law as well as we should, and so we need to unpack it a little bit further. So let's just start out, <coughs> starting in verse 6. For thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, again, remember I talked about that before, throughout the other seven nations, including Judah, that's a statement of completeness. The, the, the transgressions are complete, they're everywhere. If I may give a little bit more skin on that one, what it's really saying, again, in contrast, is this. I've never said this before, but it's for three transgressions and for four. It's not for three worships of God and four. That's the contrast. Very important we get that. He's not saying for three, three worship, worships of God and for four I will bless my people. The contrast is in the lack of worship of God. The worship is elsewhere. That makes sense? These statements are, these transgressions are statements of worship. They're activities of worship as Andrew was talking about this morning in his confession. For three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment. And again, the punishment being stated especially now because he's speaking to Israel, he's talking about the curses of the Old Testament law, Deuteronomic law. In the, in the late 20s and 30s of the chapters of of Deuteronomy, you have the curses and blessings. He's, when he says, I will not revoke the punishment, it's different than it was for the first six nations because this is directly tied to the covenant. The curses I already told you about are coming. Why? What's going on? Well, he says, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. A couple things to understand in, in the end of verse 6. The word righteous here probably does not mean what you think it means. A lot of times in the scriptures, righteous means, obviously, righteous. Contrasting with wicked. In this text it doesn't, and in a number of other texts it does not either. It does not mean righteous as in godly. Righteous means innocent in this text. Crucial. It's a very much a covenantal term. Innocent versus guilty scenario going on in this text. Innocent versus guilty. <coughs> that doesn't mean that the tra translation from righteous is wrong. It's just we need to understand what it means. It means innocent. He says, because they sell... So I'm going to use the word innocent for clarification. Because they sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. What does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament covenant, there were all sorts of laws with regard to how to deal with people that were in debt to you and couldn't pay. They borrowed money from you and they could not pay. And, this, and, and God gives all sorts of rules and laws about how to deal with it. And what this text in verse 6 is talking about is they're violating that. 
They're violating these rules. They're violating the law. Why? What are they doing? They're taking innocent people and they're selling them for silver. What does that mean? Does it mean they did? They weren't in debt? No, no, no. They are in debt. They borrowed money. Borrowed money from I borrowed money from from Charles, and he loans it to me. And lo and behold, it turns out I can't what? I can't pay him back. And so what does Charles do? The law tells him what he can do about that. It's very explicit and very specific. And what it means basically is I become his slave for a while. And then there comes a time every seven years that I'm released. And the debt is wiped out. Even if I still owe him $40,000, it's written clean. No more debt. That's what's happening here. What's happening is, what does it say? They sell the righteous or the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. When it says that they're selling the righteous for silver, it doesn't mean that they're getting silver for the person. What's that? Well, the idea is more, (coughs) believe it or not, um, they're selling them with regard to because of the silver. And they're selling them over something insignificant is the idea, all the way to the point of <laughs> it's over a pair of sandals. It's over even something as insignificant as a pair of sandals. You can read it either way, that, that they're trading them for silver and they're trading them for a pair of sandals. It's most likely, instead, it's something over really insignificant stuff but they can't afford to pay. They're, in other words, these people are absolutely destitute. These poor, by the way, another, there's a whole other set of laws in the, in the Old Testament about how to deal with what? Incredibly poor, destitute people. And it's a, a full, the, the laws about how to deal with poor and destitute people is full of people showing mercy to other people. Showing mercy to them. The idea here is that these people are not showing mercy in any way to the destitute, to the impoverished. They're dragging them into, se- into slavery and then selling them to slavery in their destitute state. Horrifying situation. These are, please understand, big picture. These are covenant people selling covenant people. That's the picture. And in the Old Testament, if you sold a covenant person, you're saying they're not worthy of being in the covenant. They're not worthy of being covenant people. The arrogance of all that. Who's on the throne in that scenario? They are. They're on the throne judging other covenant people and declaring them unworthy of being in the covenant. Now, before we continue, let me, let me help you understand where we're going with this. Big picture. What's the problem with these people? This is really important we get this. What's the problem with these people? Not the poor and destitute. Israel in general. What's the problem with these people? It's a big problem. Go ahead, what? 
We're going to get there. You're absolutely correct, Tom. <coughs> but more specifically, you're absolutely correct, Tom, but I want to get really specific here. What we have is we have a group of people who we saw last week, <coughs> this, with Judah, goes on with, with Israel as well. We have people who are practicing the religious rites. They're doing the religious thing. They're, they're doing the variety of religious rites that is absolutely understood and accepted. They're sacrificing. They're going to church, temple, tabernacle, not tabernacle, synagogue. They're going. But here's the problem. And we're going to see it develop even further. <clears throat> when they walk out of the temple, when they walk out of the synagogue, they go back into life. Make sense so far? When they walk out of the synagogue, walk out of the temple, they go into life. And it's out there in life <clears throat> that everything changes. Because when they go out into life, they begin to live life not, if I may use a term that I use with Andrew today, not in the face of God. Andrew and I were talking about this before church. Not in the face of God. That's not where they're living life. They're living life in the face of themselves. They're interacting with life <coughs> in a t from a totally different paradigm. A totally different perspective. Well, they'll go sacrifice. They'll go do the religious things. But when push comes to shove and they get involved in life, what happens? Well, to quote, not to quote, but to state the passage that Andrew had in, in the message this morning, what does it profit a man? Actually, I'm going to quote it. What does it profit a man if he, what? Gains the whole world and loses his own soul. What ha why would anybody who's supposedly in Christ be that way? Why would they? Ultimately, it's probably because they're not in Christ in the New Testament era. They're not in God. They're not in the face of God. They're not living life in the face of God, in the front of God. They're not living life from that perspective. They're living life as if they are sole sovereign. They're living life as if they are, 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 are their own God. And so when they walk out of the synagogue after doing all of their, or the temple, doing all their religious rites, they walk out and the rest of their life, for the most part, is determined by themselves. This is a scary statement. This is really scary. Because as we started off, the, beginning, the, the, the more things change, the more they stay the same. People are people are people are people. They've, if I may use a modern term, they have established secular and sacred. And the sacred stuff is the religious right stuff. 
But then when I go to my business, I got to make business decisions. And even though my business decisions, trading money, right? Lending. It sounds like business stuff, doesn't it? We, we, we see the more coarseness of it in the text, but it's just business stuff. And we get caught up in the slavery thing, the poverty thing, but we miss the point. This is just business. They're doing business. And in doing business, God's not their authority. They're not in the face of God. As they're interacting with people, they're not thinking about God who loves them and who is gracious and merciful and sovereign and just and all the rest. They're not thinking that. It's not even on their radar screen. They go sit at their desk and they're thinking about it. What? Accomplishing tasks. Isn't that what they're thinking about? They're thinking about loaning money and making money. If I'm not making money, I've got to do something about that. And what's crazy is that makes sense to all of us, doesn't it? It makes sense. Got to do business. Got to make money. Got to cut my losses. Makes sense. But God's not in the picture. And that's what's happening here. That's verse 6. It continues into verse 7. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. <clears throat> Again, in verse 7, verse 7, 8, uh, all of this is flowing out of Deuteronomy. <clears throat> Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth. Talking about the people who are doing this. What is he talking about? Well, we have a modern term, by the way. That come, this issue comes out of Deuteronomy. We have a modern term for it. I'll step over anyone I have to to get to the top, to climb the ladder. It's just a modern adaptation of this. Here are the picture in verse 7. This is a continuation of verse 6. The whole poor and poverty and slavery issues of Deuteronomy. When it says they trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, what's happening? These are Literally, these are people who are absolutely impoverished and they're, they have no home. They have no place to live. Got the picture? So, and, and Israel is a very arid country, so there's lots of dust. And the picture is figurative. It's not literal. Most people probably were not actually taking people's heads and slamming them into the dust. The picture is using people who could do nothing about your using them. That's the picture. They have no recourse. None. And again, God has a whole lot to say about this. And it gets even worse. And turn aside the way of the afflicted. The afflicted are people who are... Verse 7, beginning of verse 7. What? With debt, verse 6. And, and also, who are impoverished, they're poorer than dirt, to use a modern term. Right? 
And so their heads are being figuratively slammed into the, into the dirt. So in other words, the picture is someone who is absolutely impoverished, in debt, all the rest, and they come along to you who aren't, and they say to you, please help me. They're weeping. Their faces are, are streaked with dirty tears, perhaps, from the dirt. They're saying, please help me. And you, who have resources, do what? Turn them away. Turn them aside and move on. Now, a lot of people have taken this text to really push for we need to take care of the poor, we need to take care of the poor, we and we're missing the point. Again, this is connected back to Deuteronomy. Very important. We connected back to Deuteronomy, and we need to understand something. Really, there is some application we could do, specific application. But here's something we can do with this and should do with this. We need to remember that it's covenant people dealing with covenant people. People in God's covenant dealing with people in God's covenant. Or to put it in another way, people who, if they're walking faithfully, deserve, or receive, not deserve, but receive the blessings of God, but they're refusing, because that's what the blessings are. They've, they've received something of God, right? If they have anything, it's because of God's blessing, right? And we know it's the case because who are the Hebrew people? They were slaves, weren't they? And Amos is going to pick up on that in just a second. They were slaves in Egypt. And they, they were rescued out of slavery. Why? Because of God's mercy. Not because they were anything. Quite to the contrary, elsewhere the scriptures say they were always a what kind of people? Stiff-necked people. And here are people who have received the blessings of God because everything is a blessing of God. Deuteronomy makes that very clear. And here comes another covenant person in need. And they turn him aside. Now, we could take application from that and talk about in the covenant community that we are in and there's application to that with other covenant people, right? Other people in, in Christ. We could. But I don't even want to go that far because th that's not the real idea of the text. The contrast here, the close contrast we have here in verses 6 and 7, we're going to see it more in 8, and it gets really dramatic and graphic in 8, is that we have people who are different from one another. Right? They, some have, some don't. But they're not different because they're all in the covenant, which means they're all the same. So it's a close contrast. There's subtle differences, but the most important thing is similarity. And yet the real conflict or contrast is how they treat one another. So we move our way down through 7. We come to the last part of 7. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. What it says is what's happening. It's crucial that we get that. This is not, this is not some sort of metaphor. A guy and his son, adult son and father, are having sex with the same girl. But there's something going on behind the scenes here. In the context, who do you think the girl is? Okay, it's someone in need, add to it. It's someone in need, 
Think about the context. A slave and a member of the covenant. It's someone in need, a covenant member, and a slave. In other words, this girl is someone who was seriously in debt to most likely the father and couldn't pay him off. And so he took her as a slave. And he hasn't sold her yet, earlier verse. He hasn't sold her yet because he found value a different direction, right? And the different direction is total debauchery. Because the father, most likely, is a married person. That's possible that he's widowed. But he has a son. Correct? Now it's really interesting. Again, it's all flowing out of Deuteronomy. There's an implication in this text of, of Deuteronomy pretty strongly. And in Deuteronomy, it's really interesting. It says this. This is an exact quote, but it gives you an idea. It, God says in Deuteronomy that if you have a female slave, if I may sum it up, and your son falls in love with that slave. Get the picture so far? He is absolutely allowed to marry that slave. Now, it has to be a covenant person, right? But he is allowed to marry that girl. But then everything changes. At that point in time, the father is supposed to treat that girl as a family member. That girl becomes a part of the family. It's very clear and explicit. And he is explicitly treat her like a daughter. And instead, what has happened? The son is most likely having sexual relations with a girl that most likely is, although it doesn't say it here, most likely is his wife. And the father's having sex with her as well. And he's still treating her as a slave. Now, sex in, sex in Hebrew... Uh, in, in Deuteronomy, between a slave and 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 an owner, would absolutely be unallowed, not accepted at all. So even at that level, it's wrong. But what's going on here is absolutely horrifying. It goes on in verse seven and says, "So that my holy name is profaned." Well, how is this holy name being profaned? Any idea? Can anybody guess? Okay. Generically, his name is on Israel. Good. What else? It doesn't say it in the text. You've got to think. Let me give you a hint. What is marriage? Okay, sanctity, but more importantly, drill deeper into it. Not just sanctity of marriage, but what is marriage? It's what? It's, it's monogamy, yes, but drill even further. Yes, and why? Because marriage is a covenant. Because marriage is a covenant. And what they're doing in having sex with this girl, what the father is doing in having sex with this girl, is profaning the Lord's name because it's making a mockery of the entirety of the covenant. He's making a mockery of the entire covenant. Verse 9, or verse 8, I'm sorry. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. 
is an interesting term. <coughs> Here's why that's interesting. When I borrow money from Charles, Charles will sometimes say, I need to have something in pledge or a guarantee, collateral. The one thing the law did not allow you to do is take their garments. You couldn't take their garments. They must be clothed. They must be able to be warm. You can't take them. And what are they doing? They're taking in pledge. They're so destitute, so poor, that they're taking their very garments. And what are they doing with their garments? This is stunning. What are they doing with their garments? No, it's not. Most it may be, but it may. I don't. Not necessarily. It's. Yeah, it, it may be. It may. It actually may be connected to the high places and their sexuality, sexual uh, relations, uh, relationships, and immorality going on in the worship. Or it could just be referencing going to the synagogue and temple and putting these down during their worship. It could be either one, or it could be both. And they're using them as, if I may put the term, uh, as cushions, the, the clothing as cushions, or warmth protection from the ground. And that's interesting. Warmth protection from the ground when the people you took them from have no protection. It could be either one, and most likely swings the rope for both. They lay themselves down beside every altar, on garments taken in pledge. It's every altar, which would include both. And then it goes on, and in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. And the idea of this here, and in the house of their God, and by the way, God can be translated God or gods, plural. It can be. There's debate on which way it goes. A lot of your translations probably use God singular there. Jim, I didn't look at the King James. Is it singular or plural? Is it singular? In the King James, uh, at um, the end of verse um, 8, is God singular or plural? Yours is lowercase. Okay, so you're going with, you're, King James is going with, with all the different gods. Good. Some, some translations go one way, some translations go a different way. It could be either one. It could go singular or plural. So, either way, you have them worshiping in the house of their god or gods, and most likely it's ambiguous because referring to both again, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Who's been fined? The implication of the text, and it's just an implication, but the implication of the text is it's unjust fines. Fines that were not deserved, which would be called, what would be another term for that? Unjust fines of theft or extortion. <laughs> we're not going to go there, Tom. <laughs> theft or, or, or extortion. Um, what was the term you used? Oh, you said theft. Theft or extortion. Absolutely. And then they're doing what with it? They're using it in what? In their worship. 
They're using it in their worship. Again, I want to step back before we move on into 9 and following, because this is where really 9 and following gets really interesting. But I want to step back for a second. What's happening here? These are people going to the temple. And we can say, or to the tabernacles, I'm sorry, synagogues, we can say, well, yeah, what's wrong with these people? But wait a second. They're going to the temple or the or the synagogue, and they're doing their religious rites. They're fulfilling their religious rites. Right? R-I-T-E-S. Rites. And then they're going off to rip people off. And they're going off to do all the various things of living life that are clearly in violation to, firstly, what God has declared, secondly, and we're going to find that to be really important in a few seconds, who God is. And so what they're doing is they're clinging to their religious rights, but they're throwing away true religion. They're ignoring true religion. And we can say, yeah, but they're going off to all these other temples as well, aren't they? And the answer is, yes, they are. There's, there's high places throughout the country, and it's no different from all the high places that are throughout everywhere at all times, isn't it? High places of worship. It's everywhere. We, if I may say it, we find ourselves doing our religious rites so easily, so comfortably, because we know those are things we should do for whatever reason. Maybe we find value in them or whatever the case may be. But when we walk out of church, what do we do? We go out and we live life and we don't even so often even take into account who God is. Isn't that what happens? We go out and we don't even take into account who God is. We go out and we live life and we don't even take into account the character of God, his attributes. We don't even take into account what he has declared. We don't even consider it. We just live life. And if somebody comes along and says, wait a second, stop, back up the horses. This is who God is. And that's in contrast to what you just did or said. People are like, offended. People who claim to be part of our covenant, right? Or God's covenant to us. And they're offended. They act like, leave me alone. Sounds like Amos, doesn't it? Why don't you go back from where you came from? The more things change, the more they stay the same. And we rush off to all our high places called business and pleasure and relaxation and home and on and on and on and we never take into account these things or almost never take into account God and what he's declared and we fall into the same category therein. Don't we? Isn't that exactly what happens? I mean it's a really contemporary book. What does God do next? After this list of really important sins in violation of who God is and what he's declared. Up to this point, it's been what God has declared. He moves into what? Moves away from what he's declared into who he is. Yet, it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them. This is an absolute contrast. Whose height was like the height of, of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. He wants the Israelites to stop for a second and do a, the most important comparison contrast there can be. 
He's basically saying in verses 1 through 8, this is who you are. And this is what you've been doing. This is how you've been living. This is the height of arrogance. In the way you've been treating others and living life and functioning in your business and your recreation, in your relaxation time, in your home, in your investments, in your finances, in your health, and everything. This is how you've been acting. And it's the height of arrogance. Because ultimately, you're acting that way because you think you're God. That's why. Ultimately, you think that you're the one in charge. Ultimately, you think you're the one that's sovereign. Ultimately, you think that you are the one who is actually accomplishing all the things that you've accomplished in your life. And so he says in verse 9, in effect, where would you have been? That's what he's saying. He's asking the question. Where would you have been if I hadn't wiped out the Amorites? Now, Amorites could be referring to a really specific group of people, a tribe, but most likely here is referring to the entirety of all the people who lived in Canaan. In effect, God's saying, where would you have been if I hadn't done what I did in Canaan? And for the children of Israel, that should draw back into their mind. A couple things. First set of things is really insignificant things. And you're going to see why in a second. It would have drawn back to their mind if, they, if the Spirit was at all working in their heart. The Jordan River. And the crossing of the Jordan. Where would you have been if I hadn't opened the Jordan River for you? Where would you have been if I hadn't dropped the walls of Jericho? Where would you have been if I hadn't given you the strength to walk 26 miles uphill overnight and go to battle? Where would you have been if I hadn't lengthened the day. Where would you have been if I hadn't sent hailstones? Where would you have been if I hadn't told you how and where and when to fight who? Where would you have been? And the easy answer to those insignificant questions that I'm asking is what? They would have been where? Still in the wilderness. That's where they would have been. And they would have died. And obviously God let them in because of his mercy, didn't he? Because they certainly weren't obedient people. They had to be circumcised after they crossed the Jordan. And we know the Valley of Peor was right before they crossed. But the, the significant question is this. Who would you have been? Not where. Who would you have been if you hadn't entered the promised land? That's a significant question. And the answer to that is you would have been people who didn't enter into their rest. Remember Hebrews? 
you would have been people who hadn't entered into their rest. What does that mean? If they enter into their rest, that means they are they're lost, hell-bound people. God is speaking to the children of Israel who are at the height of their arrogance, thinking that somehow this is their, their absolutely corrupted view of God, that somehow they could practice all these religious rituals and not have a heart hot after God. And so true religion was nowhere within them. That somehow that was okay. How could that possibly be okay? What does he do? He takes time to remind them who he is. I'm the one who did this. That's what he said. I'm the one who destroyed the Amorites. I'm the one who destroyed his fruit and his roots. And then he goes on. He says, what? It was, it also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Referencing the whole slavery thing. What's he doing? He's drawing a dramatic contrast. Let's continue on. And I, implication, I led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets. And what's the significance of that? So that I could mercifully communicate to you and rescue you and tell you about me and call you to repentance. I did this. And I raised up some of your young men for Nazarites. Is not all this indeed so? Israel, declares the Lord. The arrogance. Because in effect, what they're doing is they're saying what? For all intents and purposes, without actually uttering the words, their lives are saying what Nebuchadnezzar said. Remember what Nebuchadnezzar said? Look at this great, this great land that I have built with what? My own hands. That's what Nebuchadnezzar said. And we today would say, how arrogant. You know, what the, you know what Nebuchadnezzar's problem was? And he was a covenantal person. I want to remind you. He was not a person of the covenant. You know what Nebuchadnezzar really is saying? He's saying the same thing we will absolutely be saying de facto when we don't glorify God or revel in God and think about God and live in the face of God. He's saying the exact same thing. Now, we would never use those words. We would never look at, at our world, our personal little world, our family world, whatever that we put together. We'd never actually say, look at this great home that I built with the power of my own hands. We would never say, because we know, we've heard it long enough, we know that'd be really bad to say, wouldn't it? Right? And yet in not saying it, you know what we do all the time? We say it. We say it because God's not front and center. We say it because God is not recognized as all things being from him, through him, to him, to him be glory forever. Amen. Instead we glory in our accomplishments. What we've said. What we've done. How great we are at this or that or something else. And we don't see it all in God. 
And it's very clearly evident because praise doesn't go to him, does it? It just doesn't go to him. We are not people who find ourselves giving him praise. What is appropriate? We don't. As a matter of fact, it doesn't even show up on our radar screen. Why is that? This is a really important question because it's really easy to come away from this section, verses 9 through 11, and say, man, and here's where a lot of preachers would go, we've got to do better. We've got to praise Him more. We've got to acknowledge Him more. We've got to do this and this and this and this. No! The issue is not what I've got to do. I was sharing with Andrew uh, this morning this very thing. It's not about me doing better at all. You know what it is? It's acknowledgement I can't do anything. That's the point of the text. Isn't it? Who did all these things? God did. It's not I got to do better. Please, I'd miss the whole text. What does God want his people more than anything else to do? Nothing. He wants them to know. He wants them to know him. That's what he wants. I go back to Christ's high priestly prayer. I pray that they will know you and the Son who you sent. That's all that matters. Because if you truly know him and know the Son who he sent, you know what's going to happen? If you were in the Old Testament, if you knew God, if you really knew God, you know what happened? You'd care for the poor according to the covenant. You know why you would? Not because you're trying to do better, but because you love the God of the covenant. If you love the God of the covenant, you know what's going to happen? The Spirit is going to be at work in you to what? Love His people. And to recognize who you are in light of God. And how desperate you are for Him. And how desperate you are for His mercy and His grace. And how you bring nothing to the table. And before you know it, you start to see things from what perspective? A spirit-driven perspective, especially in the New Testament era. We get it all on its head. God's not trying to get them to do better. He's trying to get them to remember. And I would present to you that if the people in Amos' day would hear verses 9 through 11... By the Spirit, they would find themselves only doing one thing. What that one thing would be? Repenting and crying out for mercy. That's all they would be doing. And you know what would start to happen? Slaves would be well taken care of. And people would no longer find their heads being pushed into the dust. They would not find themselves being turned away or being sold into slavery. You'd not find a father having sex with perhaps his son's wife, slave wife. You'd find people loving the Lord. And religious rights would be irrelevant because they'd be enthralled with Yahweh. That's what happened. 
but quite to the contrary. In verse 12, what's happening? But you made the Nazarites drink wine. What's the point of that? Well, the Nazarite vow said no wine, no wine drinking. Why would people make Nazarites who had a vow that included no wine drinking, why would, he, why would people force them to drink wine? Well, that's no different from people who are speaking God's word, having people come up to them and say, you know what, you're so heavenly minded, you're... No earthly good. No difference. Why do you have to be also spiritual all the time? Why do you have to be talking about God all the time? Why do you have to be bringing the Bible into it all the time? Why do you do that all the time? You're just making an Azurite drink wine. No difference. Why would they do that? Because they don't want to hear from God. Acts chapter 2 Verses 42 and 40 through 47, what happened to the early church when they repented on the day of Pentecost? What happened in the early church? As a result, all the people wanted to do was what? Hang out with one another. Talk about Jesus together. All they wanted to do was break bread, pray, read the scriptures, care for the poor, and on and on and on. Where did that come from? That wasn't commanded. You realize that? That wasn't commanded. Where did it come from? It didn't come from the law. It was the Spirit at work in a repentant people. And they found themselves, I just got to do this. And surely and quickly, what happened? Three chapters later, Ananias and Sapphira. Sin enters into it again, doesn't it? That's what happens. And what was the problem with Ananias and Sapphira? They lied. They said they sold their land and gave all of it to the church. They didn't. Stupid lie. Stupid lie. Because it wasn't commanded. Why would they do that? Because they lost sight. We would say, well, well they did it because, because you know, they, they, they sinned. And, 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 uh, no, they did it because they lost sight of God. They ceased worshiping God and they're doing religious rites. They ceased worshiping God and being enthralled with God and worshiping God and repenting and learning and tasting and seeing that He's good. They ceased doing that and they started finding pleasure and satisfaction in value in something else. And that should sound really familiar to all of us. If it doesn't, that's extra scary. They made the Nazarites drink wine and they commanded the prophet saying, you shall not prophesy. Serious? It had been very appropriate to test the prophets to see if they were true prophets. That would be really appropriate. If they're not, you stone them. Old Testament law, Deuteronomy was very clear. But that's not what they're doing, is it? They're saying, stop prophesying. I'm not trying to throw a guilt trip on anybody here. Not. And it'd be really easy for you to read what I'm about to say as, as throwing guilt trip on anybody, and I'm not. I'm not one who says, for example, that people should be at church every time the doors are open. You know that. I'm not that type of person. 
at the same time, it troubles me, not just in our church, it troubles me in Christians I meet all the time. That Christians don't find themselves absolutely impelled by the Holy Spirit to gather together with other believers and, and taste and see corporately that He is good. It bothers me. You know, Lois, you and I have talked about this numerous times. It bothers me that so often Christians aren't interested in that. And I'm not saying it's a test. If you come to Sunday evening and Wednesday evening, it's a test. And if you're a man, come to Bible study, it's a test. And you're coming, great. No, that's religious right. That's, that's all that is. It's just religious activity. But I find it really telling that people in general, people who name the name of Jesus in general, don't find themselves craving fellowship with other believers in the Word. That warps my brain. It, I, I can't process that. I just can't. Yesterday morning, let me use this as an example, yesterday morning, I got up, and at 6.30 in the morning, actually 6.25 in the morning, I was out on the road, I'm running down the hill in front of my house, I'm running to the bottom of the hill because I know I'm meeting three other people. And we're going for a 12 and a half mile run. And one of the guys is pretty slow, so it took us a little over two and a half hours. All three people work at High Point Camp. And all three people um, go to High Point Church. This is not a cut on High Point Church. At all. Or camp. I meet him at the bridge at the bottom of the hill, and we take off running. And for two and a half hours, we talked about the Lord. For two and a half hours, we talked about the scriptures. And we opened the scriptures. After two and a half hours, we got back to the bridge. And they all three said, why doesn't anyone ever want to do this? And I said, do what, run? And they said, no. Talk about the Lord like this. And I looked at them and I said, that's the big question. And the big answer is because they don't love Jesus. I'm not saying everybody's got two and a half hours to go for a run. Some people can't go for a run. Right, Charles? It's nothing about running. It, you may not have two and a half hours to do that. To just talk. But how is it possible we can get together and we can talk about everything under the living sun but not Jesus? It boggles my mind. We can get together with other, quote, Christians. We could talk about politics. We could talk about current events. We could talk about sports. We can talk about any number of things. Vacation coming up. We can go on a vacation for a week with people. At the end of the week, we look back and we said, you know, if we really, well, we prayed over meals. After that, it gets pretty thin. Why is that? You know why? Not because we've got to do better. Okay, next time we'll try harder. No. We just advertised our heart. We advertised our values. We advertised what's important to us. We advertised where we worship and what we worship. 
And that was the problem in Amos' day. It's exactly what they did. <coughs> as a result of all that, verse 12 and following, or 13 and following, behold, as a result, because of this, and I, it's important that we hear this, friends. This is God's perspective on that type of life, that type of living. Because of that, because, behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. What does that mean? A cart full of sheaves would weigh a lot. And because it weighs a lot, it's pushing down hard into the earth. Some of your translations may say something along the lines of shaking and things like that. The idea is still the same. <coughs> it presses down hard in the dirt. And God's saying, I will press down hard on you like a cart that's fully laden. If it's pressing down way down into the dirt and wheels are sinking into the dirt, that means that cart's not moving anywhere fast. Does that make sense? It's not going anywhere fast. That's why he says, Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow, the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself. <clears throat> nor shall he who rides the horse save his life, and he who sh- is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. And if the people in Amos' day are thinking at all in the immediate context, what did he just say to them? He said, all you got to do is slow down and think for a second. He rescued them from Egypt. It just said it, didn't it? He rescued them from Egypt. It was his doing that took them out of slavery. And yet they're putting these people in this grotesque form of slavery. Just In effect, we say, just like what I did to Egypt and the Egyptian army, I pressed down hard on them, didn't he? Right? Did he press down hard on the Egyptian army? So hard they couldn't get out when the water started collapsing. And in fact, the scriptures record that all their chariots were sticking in the mud. He was pressing down hard on them. And they all perished. What is he saying here? Right after he says that about rescuing them from Egypt, he says, I will press down hard on you so that you can't get away. If the people in Amos' day are thinking and all are saying, did any of the Egyptians get away? Did they? No. If God is pressing down on me, will I get away? No. The scary thing is, they don't believe him. They don't believe Amos. Do they? No, because later on they tell him to go back to Judah. They don't believe him. There's no evidence in Amos nor in the historical record that they did. As a matter of fact, the historical they didn't. That's why they went off to Assyria. Because that's how God pressed down on them. And that's scary. Because if I may submit it to us and become a meddler for a moment, like I have been, how many of us have heard God's warning? How many of us, not just us, but the church, generic, how many of us have heard the warnings of God? There are a number of them, aren't they? Aren't there? 
Whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. How many of us really believe that? That's the easy one. How many of us really believe that? You know the evidence of that is? We repent. If we turn to Him and learn of Him and taste and see that He is good and find ourselves becoming more and more enthralled with Him and drinking at the well and continuing to drink at the well and then the results are evident because out of you will what? Flow rivers of living water. That's the evidence. Fruit, 30, 60, 100 fold. It's the evidence. Not of what we're doing, but of the Spirit working in one of His true children. See, do we really believe? Do we really believe that whom the Lord loves, He disciplines? Or do we fall into the trap that I think it's Jude or Second Peter says, for most people, not pagans outside the church, but for most people in the church, they're arguing what? Today's the same Like, I'll sin yesterday, I'll get up today, and I really don't believe, functionally, I don't believe that God will discipline, so I do what? I just do it again. Because I really don't believe it. And then I hear verses like, narrow is the way, and few there be that find it. And broad is the way to destruction, and many there be that find that. And, that they, and then there'll be many in that day that will say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, I never knew you. And they'll say, wait, 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 look at all these things I did, religious rites. In your name. He said, I never knew you. Depart from me. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that? Or do we, if I may quote, it's a bad quote, but it's not an accurate quote, it's close. Or are, are, we, are we like what Oz Guinness said in one of his books? He's one of my favorite authors. When he wrote in his foreword, I don't believe that the vast majority of Christians have the first clue of what Christianity is about. He said, he went on to say, most Christians, he said, I find are like children who have received a chemistry set at Christmas time. And they're playing with Christianity like they play with, with a chemistry set. And they don't realize that in reality they're playing with a nuclear bomb. And he went on to say, that he thinks that ushers who are meeting people who walk in the door at church are failing miserably because handing out bulletins, no offense, Ken, handing out bulletins when they probably ought to be handing out crash helmets because God's hand of discipline is coming. And or judgment, as the case may be. I remember reading that and sitting back on my, in my chair being stunned. Because I think he's absolutely right. What the people in Amos's day were doing was playing with a chemistry set. And they're messing around with the power of the universe. Let me change that with the power that created the universe. Now, how about you? That draws me to think about repentance a little bit. Repentance about what? About playing with a chemistry set? Metaphorically speaking? No. 
brings to mind a little bit of repentance with regard to me not knowing God, being trivial and casual about repentance, if there was repentance at all, not really believing, not really trusting, not even really believing God is as holy as He says He is. Not believing the truth of what he's revealed about himself. I'm laying aside completely the law. I hope you tell you can see that. I'm talking about believing what God has said about himself. Hearing, listening to. And by the Spirit of God, seeing who I am in the light of the face of God. Because when that happens. Repentance will flow like a river and so will grace and so will mercy. And you and I will be changed. Radically changed. Radically changed. Could I just ask you to invite yourself and each other and me and I invite you all as well into that prayer. A prayer of repentance. A prayer asking God to be at work in us in ways that He ought to be. And He should be. And a prayer that is an ongoing prayer. It's not a once in a lifetime. This is not a come throw a stick in the fire thing. This is not a prayer of dedication. Or something silly and stupid like that. This is a prayer of the rest of our lives. It ought to be the most common prayer. God, I need you every hour. I need you every minute. I don't need, I don't need my, my resources. I don't need my health. I don't need my family. I don't need my loved ones. I don't need my job. I don't need anything other than you. That is a correct prayer. See, and that, sh- that exposes us because that's not the way we think. I need only you. And anything you give me is only a blessing to be used for your glory. Because it is you that rescued us from Egypt, isn't it? It's you that rescued us from slavery. It's you that took us from death to life. It's you that gave us a new heart, a fleshy heart. It's you that adopted us as son. It's you that forgave us our sins. It's you that gave us righteousness, your righteousness. It's you that gave love. It's you that gave everything good because all every good and perfect gift is from above. From the Father of lights. James is really clear. So Lord, change us. Help us. That's what we ought to pray. So that we in a growing way see all things from you, through you, and to you. Show that the result is evident 
clearly evident that all glory goes to you forever and ever. Amen. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us. We are a whole lot more like Israel than we are like your children. We are prone to wander. We know it. We're not just prone to wander. We do wander. And our wandering is all caused by one thing. We've forgotten it was you. It was you. It is you. And it always will be you. Lord, help us. Not to do better. Help us to know You. Change our heart so that we crave worshiping You. Forgive us for how often we have profaned Your name. Your holy name. by forgetting you, by ignoring you, by trivializing you, by being ashamed. Pray by your mercy that we will not be one who in the end thinks he stands but runs away, flees away naked that day. Help us be people who have your righteousness and live in that righteousness. Always recognizing that we will forever this side of glory be people who find ourselves saying, oh wretched man that I am who will set me free. Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus because we are not under condemnation. Amen and amen.